0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co
1: host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and my part was originally offered to Sean Penn. (laughs) Oh, I could have co hosted this podcast with Sean Penn? I'm here because you (laughs) turned it down, Josh. Well, I think you're
0: clearly a better choice, so uh, I'm glad that it worked out.
1: Think of the arguments you could be having with him.
0: I no, I, I don't. I don't. I feel like uh, I would lose because he's Sean Penn, you know, and uh, nobody cares what I think if I'm arguing with Sean Penn. So that's definitely true. definitely better this way. So, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1984. And this episode is Jason's personal pick. So, Jason, what did you pick?
1: Josh, I picked a film that has really never left the pop cultural consciousness, but really has come back with a vengeance, much like the Cobra Kai might have. Uh, I picked the karate kid, Josh, and I love it.
0: Yeah, well, that's I mean, I would hope that you love it. It would be weird if you picked a movie that you hated.
1: So, I picked I Cabin Boy in season one, and because that was That's a, true. But you don't hate, hate it. you
0: don't hate Cabin Boy, yeah.
1: How could anyone hate Cabin Boy? I
0: yeah, well, that's that's. You can listen to our episode and uh, learn about that. <laughs> Go back and listen to the Cabin Boy episode. But right now, we're going to talk about the Karate Kid, which, uh, as you say, Jason, certainly has really never left the pop cultural uh, consciousness and uh, was a massive hit right away. It was the number five grossing movie at the 1984 box office. So as we've been saying a lot this season, this was a year of just so many big influential blockbusters and uh, this is yet another one. And it was sort of a surprise hit. It was a small budget, a relatively small budget, only $8 million and it ended up grossing a hundred million. So certainly a huge, huge hit and big launching pad or relaunching pad for its stars. And Pat Morita, or uh, Noriyuki Pat Morita, as he's credited in this film, was even nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his role as Mr. Miyagi, the karate mentor to Daniel LaRusso, played by Ralph Macchio. He did not win, and I like him in this movie, but it is a little crazy that he was nominated for an Oscar.
1: No, I think it's uh, perfectly fitting, and that would have been fine if he won, Josh. Also, this uh, film, as you said, a huge sleeper hit. Uh, I saw a quote from uh, the writer, Robert Mark Kamen, who said that basically the studio just stopped advertising. They didn't think it was going to be anything. So after two weeks, it was all a word of mouth hit, which is amazing. Good for for the Karate Kid.
0: Yeah. And I mean, whether you like this movie or not, I think you can see how this would be something that would really... Uh, energize audiences and especially teenage audiences in 1984. It's certainly a feel-good kind of movie, the kind of movie that you come out of and you're all pumped up, and and that's certainly the way that it's designed. Uh, I mean, it was it was created, it was directed by John G. Avildsen. Wait, directed, wait, wait,
1: wait, Josh! Before you get in there, I just yeah. want to say, oh please, I, I'm very excited. We have a special guest today talking about feel-good, pump you up uh, music here. I wanna I don't even want to tease it. I just want to let the audience know a little later on we will be interviewing Joe Esposito. He's the best around at singing You're the Best Around, the most famous song to come out of the Karate Kid. Go on, Josh, do whatever you want. I just wanted to plug our guest because I feel like this is uh this is as as good as it gets, buddy. Well, I'm very excited that we have that guest. I, I don't want to say, because you
0: never know, we can we can always even, uh, let's let's continue to be ambitious. And uh, we're still working on those interviews with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, right, Dave?
2: Um, yep. Dave,
1: did you contact Martin Brest yet? <laughs>
2: he, he hasn't returned my call.
0: <laughs> oh, man. But no, that is, is, is going to be exciting to talk to Joe Esposito, who's saying, you're the best, and there's a lot of music in this movie that would get you kind of pumped up, and that I would is is at the top. But it's not even the only song in this movie uh, that has that effect. What I was going to say is that this movie is is essentially designed that way. It was directed by John G. Avildsen, who directed Rocky, and was definitely set up as kind of here's his next Rocky-esque project. And the writer Robert Mark Kamen was brought in to create a story like that, and he drew on some of his own experiences as a teenager with uh, learning martial arts. But this is a movie that is clearly crafted very, very carefully to be a crowd pleaser, and it succeeds at that. I think pretty pretty well.
1: Yes, it does succeed at that, and part of that is uh, Kamen just crushes it on structure. He really, really. You know, there might be certain things you don't like about the movie, but he really nailed the structure of this thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a a movie that you could study uh, as a screenwriter uh, for how to make something like this work. And in addition to its success, it was generally well reviewed by critics. It got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. And what I enjoyed in watching their segment is they both liked the movie. Ebert liked it more, but they both liked it. And at the end of the segment, uh, Ebert predicts that Pat Morita may get an Oscar nomination and Siskel is just totally dismissive. He says, no way. And of course, Siskel was uh, completely wrong about that. And uh, Roger Ebert also picked this as one of the best movies of 1984. In his review, he said, the Karate Kid was one of the nice surprises of 1984. An exciting, sweet-tempered, heartwarming story with one of the most interesting friendships in a long time. The Karate Kid was directed by John G. Avildsen, who made Rocky. It ends with the same sort of climactic fight scene. Daniel faces his enemies in a championship karate tournament. But the heart of this movie isn't in the fight sequences. It's in the relationships. The Karate Kid is a sleeper with a title that gives you the wrong idea. It's one of 1984's best movies. And he has a whole thing in the review complaining about the title that I left out, which is, I mean, I guess it sounds a little goofy, but it's pretty accurate as to what the movie is about.
1: Um, Well, I had, you know, I I often reference that book that I uh, like, The Ultimate History of uh, Teen Movies, 80s teen movies. And I was reading about it today and uh, there was a quote from Ralph Macchio when he was talking about, um, you know, auditioning for Avildsen in, you know, Avildsen's apartment and there's a whole line of actors outside and literally they're all making fun of the title. Like they all thought it was a stupid title, but I think, um, you know, the success of it overtook what, you know, kind of worries they had about it. The other thing, Josh, about that review that's so fun is you look back and like, he mentions many times what a sleeper hit it is, right? And it's like, it's so funny to think of it as such a sleeper hit because it is so iconic as, you know, that's the word of the year, maybe in this one, teenage and iconic.
0: Yes, that is is the theme that's been running through so many of our episodes. And uh, yeah, I mean, and I think Ebert is thinking of it as a sleeper hit, but also as a sleeper kind of in terms of his expectations, that he went in thinking this was not going to be any good and was pleasantly surprised with it.
1: And I I think that's something you were getting at, why it was such a hit, because it, it did have the heart, the action, the comedy, you know, everything that, and, you know, in a little ways, the romance, the boys could take the girls to the movies, so on, so forth. Like, it hit a lot of quadrants, man.
0: That that it did. And, and speaking of the title, the funny thing to me is that obviously the title was very important to them because uh, Karate Kid is a lesser known DC Comics superhero. And they actually had to license that name from DC Comics in order to use it and presumably pay them some money. So it was instead of just changing the title, they were obviously very uh, attached to it. So... Uh, or whatever that's worth.
1: Yeah,
0: there you go. Fun fact, guys. There you go. Full of fun facts here on Awesome Movie Year.
1: And Josh, you know who loves the fun facts? Our loyal listeners in Algeria. Thanks for making us number one in the film history (laughs) section of (laughs) podcasts. We love you, Algerian listeners.
0: Yeah, thank you. I I feel like it could be like one listener there. Josh, let's just
1: move on, can we? All right. Thank you, Algeria.
0: Uh, Janet Maslin in the New York Times was positive, but a little more mixed. Uh, She said, A large part of The Karate Kid, the best part really, seems to be taking place inside a fortune cookie. It is here, in the serene realm of Oriental wisdom, Hollywood style, that a teenager named Daniel is taught lesson after lesson about life. His instructor is an elderly man named Mr. Miyagi, who is first seen trying to catch flies with a pair of chopsticks. Throughout the film, Mr. Miyagi sustains a scene stealing, if hokey, eccentricity. When Karate is not being treated as the latest excuse for an impossible dream success story and when the film is able to find more in Daniel's martial arts career than pure rocky-esque competitiveness, the Karate Kid exhibits warmth and friendly predictable humor, its greatest assets. And she 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 liked the relationship there between Daniel and Mr. Miyagi and not so much anything else in the movie. Um but I agree with her that that's probably the strongest part.
1: Yeah, and I think it's fair to say you're not just rooting for Daniel because he's the protagonist, but because he's very likable. And that relationship is so, you know, you attach yourself to it. So you want them to win, not just because you're supposed to want them to win, but because they make you want them to win. Yeah.
0: I mean, I like their relationship. I'm not sure Daniel is that likable, honestly. And uh, that's a whole
1: oh. thing. You and your uh, big I was going to say theory. the same thing.
0: <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think the truth is it's like a whole thing and we'll talk about Cobra Kai later, I'm sure. But um, the idea that Johnny Lawrence, the uh, bully slash rival, is the real hero, and I don't, I I think neither Daniel nor Johnny is particularly. I don't really liked I, either of them that much, but uh, I do think that the relationship between Daniel and Mr. Miyagi helps to make Daniel likable. If if he's at times acting kind of like a dick.
1: Um, well, what's but- the matter, Josh? You don't like a kid from Jersey? <laughs> uh,
0: I know I I I love those kids from Jersey. You know, yeah. Jersey is. Uh, I don't think I've ever have I ever. I don't know if I've ever even been to New Jersey, Jersey.
1: Yeah, you didn't you stay with me at my grandma's when we drove cross country? As if anyone cares. So did did we stay at your? I don't know this. Or is really you picked me up from my grandma's. You, Maybe we, I picked
0: you up there. Yeah, it's possible. So yeah, let's we move, drove New
1: Jersey on. and it was like, hey, how you doing? What what you doing? Meatball, meatball, meatball. That is horrible. I'm offended now, and I'm from New Jersey. Now I remember. Uh, Richard,
0: Richard Schickel in Time Magazine was not a fan. And he, he basically dismissed this movie in a longer piece about uh, a bunch of summer 1984 movies that he thought were basically wor- worthless mainstream movies. He said, this film's art consists entirely of hiding the cynicism of its calculations under an agreeably modest and disarming manner. In this, it is greatly aided by Ralph Macchio as the kid and Noriyuki Pat Morita as the apartment handyman who teaches martial arts and pacifistic wisdom to the 97-pound weakling tired of being beaten up by the bullies at school. Robert Mark Kamen's script is developed with maddening predictability, and John G. Avildsen's direction is literal and ambling. Films like this are what the PG rating is supposed to be all about and how one longs to spot a few gremlins chuckling malevolently in the corner. So bring that back to a movie that we talked about earlier in the season. What
1: else did he you Did you read the whole thing? He probably crushed all the classic films of 84 that we all went on to love.
0: No, I forget one. The one he started with was something that I had never even heard of, actually. And I can't remember what it was and what the third one was. But I think this was actually the most like well-known movie among those that he, that he mentioned there, but he, uh, yeah, he wasn't, uh, here, I can actually, I, this is, it's exciting real time looking. Yeah.
1: While you do that, I just want to say how silly it is that he, that that was his criticism and that the, you know, the sequences of Daniel learning the movements of karate without knowing that he's learning the movements of karate have become like one of the, you know, most recognizable in film history that's been, you know, uh, homage spoofed, whatever, hundreds of times. It works so well. That's why we keep seeing it over and over. And the way it's done here is just like um, the best of that version.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like one of the reasons it seems predictable now is because of that. And I don't know how, how predictable and familiar it was at the time, but he obviously thought that it was. And I take it back, I had actually heard of both of these uh, the first movie he talks about is Rhinestone, the notorious Dolly Parton, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, oh, yeah. country music movie. Um, and then the second movie he talks about is Top Secret from uh, the Zucker Abrams Zucker team, who we've talked about in our uh, episode on Kentucky Fried Movie. So did not care for any of those, but- And um, uh, a weird
1: trio to pair together, you know?
0: Well, I assume it was just cause they were all coming out like in the same week and that's how it works when you are, you know, working on a weekly schedule and a deadline and whatnot.
1: But Josh, I want to get back to something that you said there, because I think you're right. And I was thinking about this too while I was watching it this time. Like, had we ever seen something like that, like where they're the equivalent to the wax on, wax off? Like, you know, you mentioned Rocky, you know, he's basically training. uh, The only thing that we see is like him trying to chase the chicken, right? That's like one of the iconic things like to- In, In Rocky? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, he also doesn't he uh, punch like cuts of meat in rock? Yeah, but that's That's another unconventional thing.
1: That's kind of unconventional, but that's still like, hey, I'm going through the traditional movements as you recognize them, right? You recognize him punching a big a big slab of body there, right? The reason he did that was because that's what they had access to, because he was you know poor guy or you know uh, you know guy from Philadelphia, local guy, right? But I'm saying like the chicken I get as like, hey. How is this boxing training? Why am I chasing a chicken around, right? In the same way as paint the fence, how is this karate training? You know what I mean? So I think that sequence is so important. And um, as we saw, which, again, I'm sure we'll talk about in Legacy in the 2010 remake with uh, Jackie Chan and Jaden Smith, uh, much better than that version of jacket on, jacket off, which apparently (laughs) no one ever thought might have another meaning. (laughs)
0: I forgot about, I've seen that movie and I forgot about that. That's unfortunate. You were Uh, smart to
1: forget about that
0: Yeah, yeah. So Jason, I assume given that this is uh, so beloved for you that you saw this movie sometime as a kid?
1: I saw this movie so many times. Um, I've seen it as a kid. I used to watch it with, um, in the summer, I would spend like a lot of time with my grandparents and their friends and uh, one of their friends who was like a neighbor. We used to watch it together like a lot. like. And I think that's what's cool is like it kind of goes through generations like anyone can watch it and enjoy it. And I just kind of, you know, found it again a few years ago, hadn't watched it like for a while. And now it's one of those movies I could watch every year and it's fine. So,
0: yeah. All right. Yeah. I don't know if I I probably saw it as a kid, but it's one of those things. And that's this come up a lot in this season where I don't remember the first time I saw it and I probably saw it in pieces on TV over the course of, of a number of years, but I'm sure I had seen it. And I remember specifically watching it before that remake came out uh, in in sort of anticipation of that when I was going to review the remake. Um, and that was the last time I saw it, which was I think about 10 years ago um, before watching it again uh, this week. And so I didn't have like the nostalgic attachment necessarily that you had I don't know that I'd ever seen any of the sequels, the initial sequels. Um or uh there was I, I Dave will probably remember this. Dave, was there a Karate Kid video game on the like Nintendo and the original Nintendo?
2: I'm sure there was at some point. I, I don't really remember it though, surprisingly. You'd think that would have been a bigger game, but I don't remember it.
0: Yeah, I, I
1: feel like I might have played that. Yeah, I did see the sequels. Karate Kid 2, not bad. And then it just gets progressively worse, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then the, the Jackie Chan, Jaden Smith one was such a misguided effort, even though it was made money, you know, but, um, obviously the redemption has come in just the home run of uh, Cobra Kai where they just hit it out of the park. And, and, you know, it's funny because we call this a sleeper hit and I guess this goes to the legacy, but Cobra Kai is a sleeper hit because it, it was on YouTube red for like two years. And People were like, oh, it's good, but no one really cared until it got to Netflix and then, you know, it exploded and um, they just got it right. And it's so hard to get something right that you're, you know, that you're kind of capturing 30, 40 years later, right? 35 years later, just about. And yeah. uh, they they just did such an awesome job with that.
2: Well, we'll talk more about that later.
0: Uh, <laughs> Dave, Dave, did you watch Karate Kid as a kid?
2: uh i'm sure i watched it a ton of times as a kid but i when i went to rewatch this last week i didn't remember any of it i mean it i it must have been at least 30 years since i'd seen it wow yeah that's exciting
0: even even having seen it 10 years ago there were some parts i totally forgot about the entire existence of elizabeth shoe's character in this movie (laughs) Uh
1: i have like this whole movie in my head very clear it's interesting uh And I'm interested to hear, you know, especially Dave, Josh, you're all right, too. But, you know, after not (laughs) seeing it for 30 years, this next segment of what we thought about it shall be quite a barn burner. Yes, it Mm
0: -hmm. will. So we'll come back then and talk about our general thoughts on The Karate Kid. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1984. We're talking about Jason's pick, which is The Karate Kid. And and we'll also mention again, because I know Jason is very excited. We have Joe Esposito coming up in a little bit to talk about his song, You're the Best, which is certainly one of the best aspects of this movie. And we were talking about, just before the break, about forgetting Dave and I not having seen this movie in a while and forgetting aspects. And that was one thing. Like I knew that song was coming, but I didn't remember where. And so I spent the whole movie thinking, when is You're the Best coming? When your You're the Best coming? And it doesn't come until almost the end of the movie. I was. That's
1: true. You. But it comes at the absolute right time.
0: The best time, in fact? Heyo. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Josh, you are talking about You're the Best there. And uh, as you mentioned, so many songs from this uh, really give you that that energy. "Cruel Summer," "Banana Rama" that was a big hit there, you know. Uh, "Young Hearts" by Commuter that I don't know how that one didn't become a hit, but it all leads to that All Valley Tournament and uh, Joe Esposito's "You're the Best Around" is uh, is really the climactic song of the whole thing.
0: That it is, but maybe we should uh, step back before we talk about the climax and uh, kind of. Delve into the earlier parts of the film, or uh, this is a slow movie. Uh, and one of the things in watching the Siskel and Ebert segment that Siskel was less into was the the pacing and how long this movie is. And I think you're not wrong that the the screenplay is structured pretty well, but it did feel a bit. Pokey to me at times, and and definitely when I was sitting down to watch it, and I was like, oh, this movie's got to be like ninety minutes long, and I looked it and I realized that it was one hundred and twenty-seven minutes. That was seemed wrong to me, and I I don't think it needs to be that long, but it's not egregious necessarily.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair, and you know, there I don't have many criticisms of this film, but I'll give you that one. Um, At the same time, I love the structure of it because you know, the pacing is always moving to something else, right? It's not just there for no reason. So when we get that confrontation, that first confrontation with Daniel and Johnny 10 minutes in, it would have been easy to just kind of ramp that up. And I think it would have, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, blown its load too early in the film, you know, but the fact that they kind of keep uh, teasing and taunting each other and then they have to, you know, have a... uh a truce until the All-Valley tournament lets us develop all of those other things. Like everything is put in a place for a reason, which is what I think is so smart about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, despite how he's uh, been kind of brought back in 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 recent stuff, I, I, I wouldn't say that Johnny is really developed as a character in any way. So I think you get all you need to get about the conflict between Daniel and Johnny in the very first scene where they meet. And I think the development that that works or that is is rewarding is the relationship between Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. And that is a lot of what happens in the middle of the movie. I mentioned that I had completely forgotten about Elizabeth Shue's character, who she plays Allie, the former girlfriend of Johnny, who is now into Daniel. And I thought literally everything about the storyline between Daniel and Allie was worthless. And i really, I really forgot how much there was in this movie about that. No. And any anytime they're dealing with her and 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 also his behavior in the movie, if you want to talk about when when Daniel is unlikable, it's every time he interacts with her. And well, so
1: I could have te- done without all of that. He's a teenage boy, Josh, hormonal craze. Yes. So but some of the most memorable things in the movie uh, revolve around Allie, whether it's, you know, Daniel in the shower. Um, costume, you know, kind of pouring the hose on Johnny or Daniel kind of going to the, the dance to pick up Allie when, uh, you know, and Johnny kind of kisses her, which, by the way, what a great look for William Zapka when he sees that um, Ralph Macchio sees them dancing together. He's got such a sly, great look on his face, you know, and then, you know, he gets all the food on him. Plus, that, you know, we talk about the montage sequence, you know, of the training and everything. But I have to say, I think the montage of them uh on the date at the golf and what is it called? Golf and stuff or whatever. Golf and stuff, man. Yeah. Come on. I grew up in Southern California. And <laughs> golf and stuff is sacred. There you go. Well, that I think is almost as iconic as the training montage. That's like literally the great 80s uh teenage date montage right there. I mean,
0: I love golf and stuff, but but a hundred percent no on that I mean as iconic as the training like the training is 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 so iconic I mean that is like indelible in pop culture, and that date sequences I mean I guess it's fine as far as those things go, but it's not any better uh than anything else in so many other eighties teen movies, which as we've established are there's dozens so no I mean I didn't hate it, but I definitely felt like every time it's like, oh no, he's gonna have another fight with Ali like I was not into that at all. And I was ready to just move on from that. So, I mean, I understand that's important to establish sort of his rivalry with Johnny as they're fighting over this girl. But I just thought there was way too much about their relationship. And 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 that's when Daniel is, he's always a jerk to her. And then he just expects to be forgiven, which she does. And I just didn't care about their relationship, nor did I like want them to have a relationship. So. Whoa.
1: I wanna I wanna get Dave's take on that, but also Josh, I think you're omitting something very important, which is that, you know, Allie is like you, Josh, a rich Southern California girl. I'm and sure. Daniel, like me, is just a kid from Jersey, working class blue collar. So He feels out of place. You know, he's from Reseda. She's from the hills. Like he's got a chip on or a chip or, you know, some type of insecurity about taking her out because he doesn't have the cool car. They're driving around in the mom's station wagon. So, yes, I you know, you can give Daniel a lot of crap, but also there's like a lot of character development and background in those scenes. So, uh, Dave, did you have a problem with that love story?
2: Uh, I got to side with Josh on this one. Yeah, I I just found Daniel to be such kind of a dick um, in, in a lot of these scenes. But that's not to say I didn't enjoy the movie, though. Uh, There's still, you know, plenty of fun to be had, especially, you know, all of the interactions with Mr. Miyagi and all that, all the training, all that stuff is, is a lot of fun and just classic eighties. But yeah, the the love story didn't really do much for me. And, and the character is just like, eh. did you think he
1: was a dick or was it just a lot of miscommunication as can happen in teenage romances? I think he's a dick. Yeah, he's definitely,
2: he's no he's definitely a dick
0: because it's not even that, like he just always assumes the worst about her. He never, Uh he never gives her the benefit of the doubt ever. And he never considers her feelings and no, he's a total dick to her. Uh, And that's not to say, again, going back to this idea in pop culture of Johnny being the one who's right. Johnny is also a dick and worse, you know, Mm -hmm. he's abusive. He's a terrible guy and deserves to have his ass kicked. But I mean, I sort of felt like I was, I was invested in Daniel succeeding because of Mr. Miyagi, not because of Daniel. You know, and Mr. Miyagi is this guy who sort of has this hidden talent and he's just working as a handyman and he's never really appreciated. And Daniel is able to kind of give him a purpose in life. And that I thought was a really nice character arc. And there's that scene. And one of the reviews I quoted, I can't, I mean, it might have been the New York Times review really criticizes that scene where Mr. Miyagi gets drunk and kind of talks about his dead wife and his experiences in the war. And I thought that scene was so good because it gives you so much depth to that yeah. character in a short amount of time. So I lie, and I do enjoy this movie. I, I think it's silly. And I think I looked back and when I saw it in, in 2010 on Letterboxd, I only gave it two stars and I like it more than that. Uh, and I don't know why I was so down on it at that time, but. What was um, going on with you, Josh? I don't know. I was in a dark place, maybe something like that. I was I was mad that I had to go see a Jaden Smith movie the next week or whatever. <laughs> I blame you. So. I blame
1: you on that. Hey, Josh, uh, I agree with you on that scene, and I know that was one like the studio wanted to pull, and the filmmakers fought to keep in, and it is so important because he is Japanese. He's Okinawan, and yet you know we learned that he fought for the. Um, you know, 442nd Infantry, which, you know, the American unit in the war while his wife was in an internment camp dying. And it kind of shows some honor, you know, a a real honor and nobility and regalness about him. And also just, you know, a side of ugly America that we're just starting to deal with, I think. Right. And I did a little research on that uh, unit. Did you know they're like the most a uh, decorated unit in like the history of war or something like that. I did not know that, but um,
0: I was, and that was one aspect that, again, I didn't quite remember. I was pretty impressed with the way that they address like Japanese internment camps. And, and I don't know, but I would imagine this might be one of the first mainstream Hollywood movies to even bring that up. Um, so I thought that was quite
1: good. Yeah. That re- the 442nd regimental combat Team. The most highly decorated in U.S. military history, which was all, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Japanese expats fighting for America. So that's um, really interesting. And yes, you're right. Like it really shows another side to Mr. Miyagi, who we always see as either calm or kind of joking and having fun. And like, you know, you see that he has dealt with a lot of pain. And, you know, as a Japanese American at this point, you know that he's dealt with it. From a lot of Americans, probably throughout his life,
0: right, and we see only one scene where there's those random jerks on the beach uh that that make some kind of racist remarks to Mr. Miyagi, but otherwise that doesn't really come up, but certainly you get the idea that that's something that he's had to deal with for his entire life and is part of why maybe he's just working as this you know building handyman or whatever and uh and hasn't uh sort of gotten the recognition that he deserves, although I did wonder. He works as the handyman. He has this giant, like, spread of a property where he lives. He's got this nice house, this huge Japanese garden, a bunch of old cars. Like, where does Mr. Miyagi's money come
1: well, from? Well, I was thinking about that too, right? First of all, the cars, I'm guessing he basically all restored. That's what we're to believe, right? Yeah. It's kind of, they were junkers that he restored. Um, and then, you know, let's say he bought that property in the 50s and just kind of, you know, made it beautiful on his own over the years. I could see that, you know? Yeah, I guess so. It is on the
0: other side of the tracks as they very uh, specifically note (laughs) when they first drive to it, Uh, crossing the literal tracks. So yeah, I mean, that's that's a nitpick and it's fine. And it's one of those things where if you're entertained, then you're not really thinking about it too much.
1: But it just having seen it A few times now it just kind of stuck out to me. But Josh, that's a that's a nice sequence that you're kind of getting at too. We've talked about, you know, the training montages, but the the birthday sequence where he gives him the gi and then the car, like that really kind of solidifies, you know, just how deep their friendship has become.
0: Right. It does. And again, I think that friendship between them is the best aspect of the movie, more so than again, the rivalry with Johnny. And the Cobra Kai's, or the, certainly the love story with uh, with Ali, and I mean his relationship with his mom is nice, although she disappears for long parts of the movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, I also I was amused at also that they talk about how she's she they moved to California because she's gotten a job in computers, and then she ends up being a waitress and says that being a restaurant manager is going to work out so much better than being in computers and. Boy, did she have the wrong prediction
1: for where things would go in our economy. I mean, Josh, (laughs) she's from Newark. So let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about the economy of Nork and maybe they could have invested a few in a few more computers. I would agree with that. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. So, but it, she, she's likable. I mean, they, she is. And
1: they have a nice rapport and a good, you know, kind of fun back and forth. And I think you see that right away in the road trip uh, together. And she's always got this positive attitude. She comes back in Cobra Kai for a few episodes and. She's she's fun. Uh, originally, Valerie Harper was considered for that role. Josh. No, that would have
0: been kind of nice, actually. I mean, not that not that Randy Heller is bad. She's she's good, and uh, she's got some awesome '80s hair. Yeah, there's a lot of so, great '80s hair in this movie, right? Really.
1: So, Josh, uh, since we're doing my favorite alternative casting here, uh, oh, yeah. let's see: Demi Moore as uh, Allie. Yeah. Crispin Glover as Johnny. That would have been a weird turn, huh?
0: That would have been mm-hmm. amazing, and you know what would have been even more
1: amazing is Cobra Kai, the series starring Crispin Glover now, yeah, that would have been strange. I don't even know how to process uh Crispin Glover as Johnny at this point in my head, and then the 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 typical bunch of actors, as we said, Sean Penn, Robert Downey Jr., supposedly Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez, Nick hey, we could have Nicolas Cage against Crispin Glover, Anthony I mean- Edwards. That see, would have
0: been amazing. I feel yeah. like, again, right now, if you have a movie that's like Nicolas Cage versus Crispin Glover in 2020, I want to see that.
1: Yeah, that means really? more now to me. So <laughs> yeah, I suppose. See Thomas Hal, Tom Cruise was one, of course, and Eric Stoltz. But my favorite was uh, Kyle Eastwood. Uh, Clint Eastwood's son auditioned, didn't get the role. And then Clint Eastwood banned Coke from his set because uh, the people who own Coke own the same studio that made this film.
0: Weird. Um, yeah, it, it's, it does seem like that list is just every male star who was around that age in 1984. And yeah, where's
1: Rob Lowe?
0: That's true. Where is yeah? Um, but I mean, uh, and and Ralph Macchio was in. I mean, his his sort of one major role before this was in The Outsiders, right? Which, right. Uh, right. You know, features um, some of those same people. So that was certainly like the class. The the you know maybe not the brat pack specifically, but that that sort of generation of. Young actors who got all these mainstream parts in the '80s, and I think some plenty of those actors would have been fine in this role. I think Ralph Macchio is good, and part of the reason is he's real scrawny, Ralph Macchio, and he really gives you the sense of this kid as an underdog.
1: Yeah, he can take a beating, right? He can. So he but you know, I think it's good. Like in that first sequence on the beach, where he does take the beating, but he also stands up for himself, like. It kind of helps you root for that character in that, like, he's not just going to be bullied around, you know, uh, you know, and then we get to the Halloween dance and, uh, he takes his beating again because of his own actions, you know, um, right. Yeah. I mean, he has some integrity there in that first confrontation where
0: he's trying to help Ali, but he definitely antagonizes them afterwards.
1: They they antagonize each other, you know, uh, the Cobra Kai on the soccer field, uh, They play dirty against him and yeah, there's a lot of that for sure. Yeah. So
0: do we wanna mention uh, Martin Cove as Crease, the really cartoonishly evil head of the dojo, the Cobra Kai dojo? I mean, he really leans into it. Like he could be the villain in a Chuck Norris movie in this month.
1: Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, Josh.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, and whereas Johnny is sort of a typical, just like teenage dickhead, And, you know, he's not likable, but you
1: can sort of see him as a real person. Like, Crease is just a cartoon character. Crease is so good in Cobra Kai. He hasn't toned it down at all, but it kind of matches where Cobra Kai is going. And um, I love him in that. And, um, you know, Josh... As we know, one of the uh, most famous lines in cinematic history, sweep the leg.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of really iconic lines. We didn't even mention wax on, wax off. I mean, we kind of mentioned that concept, but that line, and that's one of those things where you're just waiting for him to say it. Right, paint the
1: fence, all that stuff, you know? Right, Uh, right. And and I wanted to bring up one point, Josh, because you had mentioned the review that talked about like stilted directing. I thought there were a lot of beautiful shots in those training montages. Yeah, I think this is a well-directed film. And I mean, you can certainly see how
0: they would have hired John G. Avildsen after Rocky and that this movie is sort of, you know, you can see this movie as as very similar, not just in the, the structure, but the way he sensitively treats this kind of story. And I think this is one of those movies like Rocky that if you hadn't seen it before, you think of it as kind of this silly pop culture thing. And there's a lot more heart to it and a lot more grit to it than you might imagine, and, and especially compared to the sequels. And that's the same thing for Rocky is it becomes a pop culture sensation and the sequels lean into that and they're not as as good. But here, there is there is a lot of heart and a lot of character development. And I think that that works for it. I, I don't love it, but I like it more than I apparently did in 2010.
1: Do you see why not only I, but many other people love it? No, I can absolutely
0: see why people love it. And and like I said, especially. For something that I'm sure at the time that it came out was such a movie for kids to get pumped up about, and even if you see it, um, you know, years later, however many years later, when you're a kid at the time, I can absolutely see that um, as a movie that is has a nostalgic appeal, but also you know just has that kind of crowd pleasing aspect, and I think. This is one of those movies that maybe because I wasn't particularly attached to it as a kid, I don't have that nostalgic association. And so I, I'm less sort of inclined to love it. But but it's a good, it's a well-made film. It is a well-made film.
1: Well, I'll take that from you. And also, I just want to say, as we said before, it's not just kids, man. This thing crosses, uh, it transcends uh, geographic and uh, demographic boundaries, Josh.
0: That it does. Well, of course, Roger Ebert was not a kid in 1984 and uh, certainly was well taken with this Well, film.
1: I did judo as a kid. Did you guys do any martial arts? I definitely oh, yeah. did not, did you?
2: <laughs> oh yeah, I was terrible, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> That is not a surprise. Do
1: you have, can, if your mom's listening, can you put up a picture of Dave in his, what'd you do, karate?
2: Yeah, absolutely. In she still gi- has sit- sitting in the living room, the board that I chopped. Oh, my, that my sounds right. Yeah. Can we get
1: a picture of you in the gi?
2: I, I'm sure we can make that happen. Yeah. Let's hope so. You can
0: put that on the Patreon for a uh, hundred dollars <laughs> yes.
1: to see Dave and <laughs> his karate outfit. I mean, you know, we can keep talking, but I think this is probably as well known a film as we've covered throughout the course of, uh, you know, awesome movie year. So do we want to, we want to rate this one, Josh, out of, uh, Five uh, uh, Halloween skeleton costumes. That's a not very essential aspect of the movie, but Do you want to rate it out of five All-Valley Championships? Or whatever, crane kicks, you know?
0: It doesn't matter. We can go with the. You know what? It's your episode, Jason. Let's go with your suggestion. Let's rate it out of five skeleton Halloween costumes. No, no. I'm I'm, on the
1: All-Valley Championships already. All right. Okay. Okay.
0: (laughs) Whatever it is, I'm going to give it a three out of five. It's fun. I
1: don't love it. All right, uh, Dave. I'm giving it a three out of five as well. All right, gets four and a half for me and you two are showing your ass. Wow, that is like a lot. That I love awesome. it, it's, it's almost perfect. I, I still, I mean, you guys have brought some things to my attention, maybe i drop it to a four but uh, it's almost a perfect film and All right. uh, we should discuss that with our guest, Joe Esposito.
0: Yeah, so we're excited to talk to Joe Esposito, which we will do in a moment.
1: All right, we are back here on Awesome Movie Year, and we have a special guest with us. He's, he is the best around. Joe Esposito, everybody. Man, how you doing, Joe? I'm good. How you doing? Doing well. Joe? When you yeah. recorded this song, did you think that 40 years later you could still be living off of it?
3: Have, no, absolutely not. I remember, I can tell you this, a lot of people used to use uh, me for this, I call this my meatloaf voice, that growl and all that stuff. And I remember doing this and I was sweating and I was like, oh, you know, this is crazy. You know, Karate Kid, the, the hit off the movie was uh, the Banana tune, Cool Cruel Summer. Nothing with You're the Best. Uh, maybe 20, 25 years later, my son grows up, becomes a uh, a, uh, a Major League Baseball uh, pitcher. But when he was at Arizona State, he calls me one day and he says, Hey, Dad, you're not going to believe this, but the, you know, pitchers are coming out. And when they're warming up, they're using the song from the Karate Kid. I'm like, you kidding me and then when he got uh, uh, drafted to the Colorado Rockies as a rookie they because they knew he was my son they made him sing the song and then from there I started to be aware that wow people are using the song I see it like you know Manny Pacquiao walks into the ring it's in a commercial and then you know it just snowballed from there I mean hey like a gift from God that's all I can tell you
1: so are you saying like for like from like 84 for about like 20 years it just was kind of dormant and then just exploded back onto pop culture through sports?
3: I believe so. I I mean I could be wrong about that but yeah. I believe so. It became like a sports anthem, you know.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I know like you said there are baseball teams and uh the Devils, you know, we're both from back east whenever Martin Brodeur would make a save they would play uh you're the best around. There's a lot of wrestlers who came out to it, and Mandy Pacquiao. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Tell us about uh, when you originally recorded it, because it wasn't slated for the Karate Kid originally.
3: Uh, originally, uh, here's what happened. I I used to do some work for Sylvester Stallone, and uh, it was I think it was for Rocky Three. I, I think Rocky Three came after the movie Staying Alive. Uh, Sylvester Stallone asked his brother To get in touch with me He loved my group, The Brooklyn Dreams And so we wrote a, a bunch of songs For the movie Staying Alive And I, I believe uh, Now I knew Allie Willis From way back in New York And she was a songwriter And she had asked me To, to sing this song Because her and Bill Conti wrote this song For Rocky Three, And there's a lyric in there that says History repeats itself and it really doesn't match up for the Karate Kid because it's about him fighting club Lang. He loses, he comes back and he beats him, he regains his, his title. But the Scotty brothers, who had a record company and they were tied in with Stallone, they had Eye of the Tiger. Uh, the Survivor song, which is a great song, so it didn't make Rocky Three. Now, John Alvison, who directed Rocky One, was directing uh, the Karate Kid. He liked the song so much he put it in the Karate Kid, and that's that's how it wound up in the Karate Kid.
1: And wh- tell us about the first time you saw that sequence where the song is used in the All Valley Tournament because it like brings such an energy to the to the film.
3: Yeah, I mean, I thought it was great. I didn't really think too much of it. I mean, it was another song that I did because, you know, I was in the in the middle of doing all different types of stuff for different types of movies. You know, I had done Flashdance. Uh, uh, I was working with Donna Summer, you know, so there was so much going on. And uh, I just I thought it was great for the scene. But that was it. I didn't really think this is turned out to be one of the biggest things I've ever done. And I've done some other things that, you know, like uh, Flashdance with Lady Lady was like a hit all over the world except the U.S. Ha- Heaven Knows was a number three record. I co-wrote Bear Girls. But again, that was like on the strength of Donna Summer. I mean, I just happened to be there. I mean, it, w- it, was, it was good, but it was really on the strength of who she was. But this particular song is really my little thing, I guess, that, you know, Nobody really helped me. It just became. Well, I guess you could say Sylvester Stallone helped me because if it wasn't for, I guess Rocky Three, maybe it wouldn't have gotten in, in the Karate Kid. But hey, I'm very happy. I'm happy to be here talking to you guys too. So <laughs> well, we're ha-
1: we're happy to have you. Were you doing a lot of uh, soundtrack specific work in the eighties?
3: Yeah, I did a bunch of stuff, and I got to tell you, sometimes. <laughs> People send me stuff, and I'm like, hmm, I don't remember doing that. And I'm not senile or nothing. Like, My son will send me something. Hey, Dad, look at this. I, I, this is a song I did with this kid, Tommy Fuchsberger, in Europe. And I, I remember going to Europe and singing with him and doing a record with him, and then I wind up, I, I see this video, and I'm like, what is this? I don't even remember this. So I don't search out myself on the internet. People send me stuff. Hey, look at this. You did this in Scarface. There's a song called success that I did in the Scarface movie through Giorgio Moroder. I don't remember doing it. I got to tell you Cause I was, I did so many things that, uh, <laughs> these things pop up and I'm like, Oh wow, that's pretty interesting. You know,
1: Giorgio Moroder is someone I was going to bring up because he was such a, uh, Influence or forefather on that synth sound him and harold Faltermeyer in the 80s yeah, so i was exactly. wondering if you wanted to talk a, a little about 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 the development of that sound and just how much it meant to music and soundtracks in the 80s
3: well you know he he was a, a force for sure especially with donna summer and then the movie soundtracks he did midnight express he did uh Top Gun. He's done a a lot of movies. So he really liked me because I would do stuff pretty quick. And for Flashdance, I remember they were kind of talking about (laughs) they didn't really think the movie was going to be that big i was working on staying alive i sang lady lady at some point he was thinking of having me sing the irene cara tune and at the last minute they picked irene cara and uh, he was just great to work with and i love being around him because he was so innovative just you know the 80s i mean he seemed to own the 80s with all the soundtracks and stuff
1: yeah one thing we were talking about and uh we were too young to know it but Karate Kid was like a surprise hit in 84. It wasn't like a big slated, you know, predictable hit. Can you talk about how it maybe just took on a life of its own back then?
3: I don't know. You know, it's almost like it became like a cult movie years later. You know, Uh, I don't know how that happens. All I know is I sang the song in the movie. And uh, and of course, now with the resurgence of Cobra Kai, which came out of nowhere again, you know 35 years later all of a sudden now they're going to be using my song in season three which is hey it's like a gift i call it the gift that keeps on giving you know i i, I don't know what to even say about how it happened I, like i say i was doing so many things I, I never gave it a second thought you know what i mean
1: yeah i do yeah i love cobra kai i think they nailed it the tone and everything and i'm so happy to hear that they're going to use the song in it
3: Yeah, I actually. Uh, I got a call from uh, one of the creators of Cobra Kai a couple of weeks ago, and he says, you know, we took a lot of heat for not using your song in the first two seasons. Everybody was saying, hey, they're using every, every, every song, and they're not using your song. I'm like, I have no control over that. I had no idea that we're going to even use it in season three. And uh, so it's, it's a big surprise, and it's, it's really a pleasant surprise, I got to tell you.
1: Uh, do you watch the show?
3: Yeah, I watched the the two seasons. You know, I actually, I got to tell you, I never really saw The Karate Kid in the movies, even when it first came out. They had a, uh, a special thing, like on a Tuesday night all over the country, they had in select theaters the first two episodes of Cobra Kai. Because it was on YouTube Red. And if you didn't have YouTube Red, you couldn't really watch it. And, and then they showed the movie. So my wife and I went and we went out to dinner. We went to the movies, we watched the first two episodes of Cobra Kai. And then I watched the movie in the movies. And when I heard the song, I was like, wow, this really sounds good. Especially, you know, so far removed from when I first did it you know and uh yeah it was just really really cool
1: that's amazing so you had seen it on video or whatever and your first time seeing your work in the karate kid was like five years ago or something like on the big screen
3: on the big screen i mean i saw it on tv sure you know but it's not the same effect when you go to the movies and watch it you know i mean it, it sounded so big and powerful you know i was like wow that's pretty good. My wife said, take it easy, you know. <laughs> and she always keeps me grounded. She says, all right, you know, that's great. Go take the garbage out, you know Right. And I'm like, okay, right. okay, honey. You <laughs> know.
1: Well, well, when you do it, you're the best around. Nobody takes the garbage out like you.
3: That's, I wish she could hear that, but she's not here right now. Yeah. That, there you
0: go. Um, Joe, I wanted to ask, the song has become such a, a huge thing in pop culture. Do you yeah. have any favorite uses of it when it pops up elsewhere or a parody or anything like that that you
3: remember? I don't know. I was kind of surprised when uh, people were calling me and telling me Manny Pacquiao walked into the ring with it. And uh, when I hear stuff like that, I'm, I, it makes me proud. You know, you work so hard for so many years doing things. Uh, you know, there was a point where uh, my, uh, my first record company executive, Jimmy Ina, was the musical director for Dirty Dancing. And he was thinking of using myself and Donna for the time of your life. When Donna heard it, heard the title, she turned it down. Uh, and and then they got they got Bill Medley with Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, there was another movie, Prince of Thieves. The the song that, uh, what's his name? Uh, Brian Adams, Everything I Do For You. I had a shot at that. I I, I went with them uh, to meet uh, David Kirshenbaum and Jim Mazza, and they were thinking, would you want to do a duet with Brenda Russell, Barbara Streisand, or or Linda Ronstadt? I was like, are you kidding me? Of course. We wrote a different song, but then Brian Adams, I guess they were talking to him too, and of course he wrote a great song for it. So it's those type of things sometimes... You know, I don't even talk about because I didn't get them. And then, you know, most of the times you don't get them, but the one or two times they slip through, it's like, aha, okay, so, you know.
1: Yeah, it's been all over, you know, some of our favorite shows, Sunny in Philadelphia and uh, we we talked about on the podcast the documentary King of Kong, which uses it. Have you ever seen yeah. it? You, did you see the No,
3: I, I, no. People tell me, hey, it's in the King of Kong. It was on it was on the Simpsons. It was on the Thomas the Train because I have grandkids and my grandkids watch that. My, my daughter calls me, you know, your song was on Thomas the Train. I'm like, you kidding me? That's Believe me, that's how I find out. It's like me trying to connect with you guys today, and I'm like, oh, it's a Safari. My, uh, I don't have an updated Safari. I had a Safari. I had to copy and paste it and go to Google Chrome. So, like, you know, I'm not real technical.
1: No, that that's cool. <laughs> we have a couple more questions. What's the weirdest opportunity this song has brought to you?
3: The weirdest opportunity? Yeah. I don't think there's been any weird opportunities. I'll tell you what, what, what I just, what I did do a couple of weeks ago, I was asked to do a commercial for this uh, a, a password protection uh, iCloud service called uh, Keeper. And the premise is, the husband can't find his password. The wife goes, oh, it's on Keeper. He goes, what's Keeper? It's where the passwords are. Oh, great. That, you're the, that's the best. You're the best. And there I am. You're the best. It just came out on Facebook like yesterday. I did that a couple of weeks ago. So, you know.
1: Yeah. The reason I asked that is because we're all in Las Vegas. And I love, you know, our mutual friend, Brandon Powers, who owns Evil Pie and Golden Tiki. When they win an award, they bring you in to sing. You're the best around. Well, I don't think that's weird. I think it's kind of
3: cool. And it, what a—he's such a cool guy. And that that bar, the Golden Tiki, reminds me of like like I feel like I'm in Soho in New York. It's such a uh, an eclectic type of place where you got these pretty girls with tattoos all over them. It just reminds me of a like a really cool cool place. And uh, he also introduced me to Jason Green, who. Uh, Got me uh, on the uh, the Karate Kid uh, signing autographs in uh, in L.A. last year before all this COVID stuff started, with all bunch of different stars and stuff at the in L.A. Uh, at the ho- at a hotel I don't know if it was the Hilton or something like that. So through him, I've gotten to meet some really pretty, pretty cool people, and he, they did like a thing where they put my – they they gave me a shrunken head and they put me in like the their wall of fame like with. Uh, you know, uh, a bunch of other people. So it's pretty cool. Man. Plus you they got great food there too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. I wanted to ask, speaking of Las Vegas, I know that, that Pat Morita was living in Vegas, uh, towards the end of his life. Did you ever connect with him here or anything like that?
3: Never. I wish, listen, I wish he was alive because Cobra Kai would have been really special with him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was, to me, one of you, that's know, a big, big part of that uh, thing that not that they're missing, but yeah, if he would have been around, I would have been great. No, I never had no, I never met him at all.
1: Joe, last question. Now we kind of talked about the legacy of the song. Did you yeah. have any idea that this movie, that this kind of story would ever have this type of life? How
3: could you, right? No. Like I said, you're doing this, you're doing that. I, I'll give you a for instance. I was working on the movie Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. I had four songs in that movie, and I'm thinking, this is going to be it. And Flashdance, they're like, hey, I don't know, and, and Flashdance went through the roof. And Staying Alive did good too, but nothing like Flashdance. And I'm like, ah. So, you know, when I'm recording or whatever I'm doing, you, ha- you never have any idea what's going to be a hit. Heaven knows Donna Summer, uh, uh, Neil Bogart, the president, hears this song, MacArthur Park, which was a big hit for her. And on the album, in the MacArthur Park suite, it breaks down into this thing. Heaven knows they didn't even have a song. And Neil goes, what is that? And they're like, well, that's just a little. He says, that's a hit record. I, I want Donna to do that. And then, then Georgia says, hey, we're going to do a duet and you're going to sing it. I sing it, becomes a number three record, sells over a million singles again. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Had no idea. So Pretty cool. that's the way the business goes, you know?
0: Yeah. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so fun. We're so happy to
3: have you. Oh, that hey, it's been a pleasure for me too. So Do you have anything you yeah. want to plug Joe? Website? Yeah. Twitter, social... I'm doing an album with Vinnie Poncia who is a legendary producer and songwriter. He's written for Elvis Presley. He's written for the Ron X. He wrote, I Was Made For Loving You by Kiss. He wrote, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing for Leo Sayer. We're kind of doing like this bluesy R&B type of album so uh you know stay tuned because uh even during the pandemic i mean i have a studio here so i can send vocals thank god i could do this too i don't just have to sit around and do nothing i send vocals to my, my the engineer in new york and he flies them in and you know we have these tracks and uh we're doing it this is the way we're doing an album i mean in these crazy times you know well yeah and i'll keep you posted to you know let you know when it's ready that'll
1: be great and hopefully soon enough we'll get to hear it live at least somewhere here in vegas again right
3: yeah absolutely
1: well joe this is awesome you are the best around uh we're so happy to have you on and some amazing stories so we we wanted to thank you and uh we're excited for the new album when it comes out and cobra kai season three
3: cobra kai season three here we go
1: here we go man strike first strike hard no mercy joe
0: Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1984. We've been talking about Jason's pick, The Karate Kid, and we just had an amazing conversation with Joe Esposito. I don't know how we can top that, but we're going to talk a bit now about the legacy of The Karate Kid.
1: What a great interview! We learned so much there, Josh, and uh, what an exciting time it must have been to be working in soundtracks and in the music industry in general. Like you said, you never know. What's gonna hit? What's gonna miss? And what opportunities come? And he's still going, man. So that's exciting.
0: That is, and of course, the music is a huge legacy of this movie. I mean, we've talked a lot about in the '80s uh, the the sort of importance of soundtracks and how that became such a huge thing. And the hits from here. Joe mentioned the Banana Rama song, "Cruel Summer," and of course his song, "You're the Best," which became a bigger hit almost decades later. But I mean. The soundtrack is such an important element, and uh, those songs have lasted just as much as the movie has.
1: Yeah, well, certain songs, like Cruel Summer sounds timeless, right? It doesn't, I mean, you know, it's from the 80s, but it, it could have been released today as like an indie record. You're the best around, definitely has that 80s feel, but I love what he was saying about how it kind of took off through all these athletes and, you know, sports teams just kind of picking up on it 25 years later. How cool is that? So um, and then you know the other thing he brought up was Cobra Kai, which has given this whole Karate Kid uh, franchise new life.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how big a hit that is. And and you were saying earlier it it was kind of I mean I think it was underestimated because people thought this is a cheesy thing and why would we want to watch this weird kind of sequel? It's just trying to capitalize on any pop culture property. And then it it was acclaimed. I mean it was well reviewed and it it was popular when it premiered on YouTube Red and then it its move to Netflix has just made it even more popular. And there's a third season, I believe premiering in, in January. Yeah. So uh, maybe even around the time when this is uh, when you're listening to this podcast. yeah I think
1: January eighth is when it comes out and they've already renewed it for season four. And a lot of the times we see this stuff like where it's like, uh, example, girl meets world. Now they're parents, and you know, we have to do the same thing, but in like a parental role. Like that's kind of what Cobra Kai is, but it gets it so right. The tone, the stuff between Johnny and Daniel. The um, the kind of uh, growth on uh, Johnny's part as like building this new Cobra Kai and Daniel, some of the pitfalls he's, he falls into with recreating or resurrecting Miyagi-Do, like there's so much good stuff. Like uh, Joe was saying, they, they nail all the references, you know, like I don't know how they did it, but like I think as far as like, um, I don't want to call it a reboot, but like as like a next generation thing, like... It's as good as a project as there's ever been.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I only, to be fair, I only watched the first episode uh, to prep for this in part because of how much you love it. And it, it was cute, I guess. There was nothing in that episode that made me feel like I wanted to watch more of it, but it's possible just, just because I don't have that same inherent love for this property that it it didn't grab me. But you can't deny that it's been hugely popular. and And I think, maybe not more popular than the initial Karate Kid sequels, but certainly more well-respected, let's say, than Karate Kid Part 2 and Part 3, or uh, of course, the next Karate Kid in 1994 with uh, Hilary Hillary Swank, Swank and Pat Morita. So uh, props to Kropokai, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, also, Josh, I just want to say, like, one of the beautiful things about it is Machio and Zapka, they got chops, bro. You know, like, sometimes we see these, like, teenage stars, like kind of try to do stuff decades later. And you're like, how were you ever famous? You can't act. These guys really, these guys really have it, man.
0: Yeah. Well, Ralph Macchio has had, I mean, he, he didn't become maybe the huge star that you would have expected after the success of this movie, but he's had a very solid career and, and done some good work as an adult. Uh, I mean, my cousin Vinny is looking through his his non Karate Kid filmography. I mean, that's a great movie, and he's a very important part of that movie. And just fairly recently, he was a cop on the the David Simon show, The Deuce, on HBO, and he disappears into that part so well that you don't even necessarily realize it's him. So I I think he's maybe been underrated, and and William Zabka is someone who really had been out of the spotlight a lot more and has come back in that way.
1: Yeah, and I agree with you. They both they both were good actors, but you're right. Maybe we underestimated them. I think Macho had some good turns on The Sopranos, if I'm not mistaken. I never watched The Big Bang Theory, but I know that was like a big storyline where they were saying that Johnny was the real hero. And it was on uh,
0: How I Met Your Mother. Is, it's the same uh, show, is,
1: isn't it, Josh? So. That is not the same show. <laughs>
0: oh. You know, it's possible they mentioned on The Big Bang Theory as well. No, you're but,
1: right. It's How I Met Your yeah, Mother.
0: Yeah, and that was where, where there was in specifically one episode where William Zabka uh, shows up as uh well, as himself, but because Barney, the character played by Neil Patrick Harris, is so is such a huge fan of Johnny and is uh of the belief that Johnny was the real hero of the karate kid. Um, but I think that is is it's not something that that show invented. It was a response to something that a lot of people had talked about over time,
1: right. That is one of those fun things to talk about. And yeah, no, that that's definitely it. And I think that's part of the fun of the sparring on Cobra Kai which you don't know about because you only watched the first one of like Johnny like saying, well, you stole my girlfriend or you used an illegal maneuver in the all Valley tournament. And, you know, Daniel obviously has answers for all of that. And, you know, they do call back so many of these things and bring back old characters. And uh, the season two finale is one of the wildest shows I've ever seen. Like, it's just nuts how um, it's basically uh, I, I if uh, not to spoil it, but an entire fight throughout a high school for like 15 minutes between the kind of Miyagi-o, Miyagi-Do students and the um, and the Cobra Kai. And it's just nuts. I'm sure it is. Well, I don't um, care. You, we get it. You're not going to watch it. I am. And uh,
0: that's cool. Yeah. No. And, and, and again, it is very, very popular and it has a huge following. You're certainly not the only one. Did you ever see the next Karate Kid or the, the Jaden Smith remake?
1: I saw the Jaden Smith remake with you. Uh, oh, did you? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so far today he's forgotten that he's uh picked me up at my grandma's to drive cross country and that we saw the horrible karate kid together. Man, you are you are losing uh losing ground in the hetero life mate category today, Josh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Or or I just or I just have a bad memory, apparently. <laughs> no, it's all good. Uh that that movie's horrible and it and it didn't get the spirit right. And that's what Cobra Kai does. Like it tried to be so serious that one. And it had the right guy for comedy in that Jackie Chan can pull off that very serious, you know, martial arts while having a sense of humor. But they just missed it was such a miss that movie.
0: Yeah, I don't remember a lot of the detail about it, but I definitely remembered not liking it. And and Jaden Smith, I mean, he's continued, he's he's done a lot of weird stuff, but he has continued to act in various things and maybe he's gotten better. But I think that was one of the first things he did, and it really felt oh. like hey, here's a celebrity kid who gets to be in this movie even though he maybe doesn't deserve it.
1: Well, yeah, his dad produced it and his dad produced uh, Cobra Kai. So I think he has some ownership in the property now, Will Smith. Um, One thing I wanted to say, Josh, is because we talked about like kind of uh, how this movie just kept growing and building. It was a top rental in 1985, VHS rental. So in 84 it came out and then, you know, that word of mouth just kind of took over. In 85, that's, you know, Number one rental at video stores.
0: Yeah, it was it was huge. And and it's certainly something that I can imagine that, you know, kids having sleepovers would rent this and and watch it, whether or not they'd initially seen it in theaters at first. It did also, I mean, we talked a bit about Ralph Macchio. It certainly pr- it provided kind of a second act for Pat Morita's career. He was a stand-up comedian and he was known for comedy roles and he had to work hard to get this role. And it obviously got him an Oscar nomination and allowed him to do some more dramatic stuff. Um, he, he, like Ralph Macchio, he worked steadily, but I think he never really became as much of a superstar as you might've expected. Um, he had a, I think immediately after this, he had a a cop, a police procedural show that he starred in called Ohara. And, uh, he was in the Mulan movies, uh, doing voice work, which is probably the biggest non-karate kid thing he ended up doing. And I think in his later years, he would guest star in a lot of shows and and sort of low budget movies, playing a character who was very much like Mr. Miyagi. And that would just be kind of a joke that, hey, here's this Miyagi-like character. But he was working.
1: You know, a lot of us remember him uh, from Happy Days. Uh, Was it Arnold? He played Arnold.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, either from the repeats growing up that we're always on or from the Weezer video for Buddy Holly when he's in there.
0: Uh, And I wonder, Jason, I haven't seen this, but as a stand-up comic, have you seen any of his stand-up? Is he good?
1: I have not seen any of his stand-up comedy, so um, I can't answer that, Josh. All right, well, I'm glad I asked. (laughs) It's a fair question.
2: Have either of you guys seen The Karate Dog? (laughs)
0: <laughs> is he in that? I hope he's...
2: Apparently I, he is. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's unfortunate. It's yeah. got to be just a cameo. The, but... the Karate
1: Dog, like, is that just part of, like, uh, uh, Air Bud uh, franchise, or is that a spin-off? Yeah, it's like
2: that? a direct-to-video dog movie. Yeah, yeah no, it's nothing yeah. major. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I mean, unfortunately he did a lot of
0: those kinds of parts, I think, in his later years where he would just get hired to riff on Mr. Miyagi. And, I mean, sure, I'm sure he got paid, and that's cool, but it's a shame that he didn't really get to... Dig into some more substantial parts there later on, and John G. Avildsen and Robert Mark Kamen, the director and screenwriter, they both went on to work on the next two sequels, which were uh, not as much, you know, well regarded. And Avildsen, sadly, following this, was nominated twice for the the Razzie for worst director for *Karate Kid* Part Three and for *Rocky* Five. So his returns to his glory days. Uh, did not work out that well. No,
1: he did have one more. I mean, if you look at Rocky, Karate Kid, Lean on Me, those are three, you know, iconic films. So he had three, and that's pretty good.
0: Yeah, I know that is pretty good. But I think again, it's something where his career didn't take off necessarily in the way that you would have hoped or imagined. I'm sure he got plenty of money for those Karate Kid sequels, but yeah, not as much the respect that you might have expected.
1: Hey, Josh, one other thing that, as it relates to um, awesome movie year on Avildsen, you know, he was originally slated to direct Saturday Night Fever and uh, it wasn't working out, so he was replaced.
0: Right, yeah, we talked about that, I think, in our Saturday Night Fever episode. And uh, Robert Mark came in, it's kind of amazing he is is still a working screenwriter for these big blockbuster type movies. Uh, I mean, in the 80s, he he wrote Lethal Weapon 3, and then he hooked up with Luc Besson, and he was uh, the co-writer on the Taken movies and the Transporter movies, which Jason, I know you're a fan of
1: those. I like the Taken. I like Taken. I don't love all the Transporter stuff, but he is uh, not only just working in this huge blockbuster arena, but he's like, you know, I listen to Script Notes every week, and... Uh, he's a beloved screenwriter for other screenwriters like uh, co-host Craig Mazin over there.
0: Yeah, he's done really well. And just last year, he wrote the uh, terrible uh, but successful Gerard Butler movie, Angel Has Fallen. So good for him yeah. doing that stuff. And I think he may actually, i this was on Wikipedia, so it may not be right, but I think he may actually have joined the writing staff of Cobra Kai for the third season that's coming
1: up. Well, that's uh, what a thrill it would be to be in that writer's room, huh?
0: That, that is so true.
1: Yeah, with,
0: with both the creator of The Karate Kid and the creators of Harold and Kumar teaming up together, pretty amazing.
1: I mean, that's a, that's a good deal, Joe Esposito. Yeah. Listen up in season three for you're the best around. Yes.
0: Anything else you want to add on the legacy of The Karate Kid, Jason?
1: I think we hit it, Josh. You know, In another 15, 20 years, it'll still be here. It's going to be one of those uh, movies that lives on like Chaplin, buddy. Are you comparing this to Charlie Chaplin? Nope. I'm saying that Charlie Chaplin's films live on and The Karate Kid will live on. Okay.
0: Let's let's end on that note then. That's The Karate Kid. <laughs> and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Thanks again to Joe Esposito for joining us. And uh, check us out on social media.
1: Yeah, give us a look on the old social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Got beat in the All-Valley Tournament for websites (laughs) very early on. Uh, We're on AwesomeMovieYear.com. That's got a feed. Uh, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram and AwesomeMoviePod on Twitter. I am at
0: JoshBellHatesEverything.com, which I think in recent episodes I said I was going to add some things to, and um, that didn't happen. But it's still there. Also, Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And also don't forget to check out our produced by David Rosen Patreon, which includes bonus content from Awesome Movie Year and Piecing It Together and my music career. And speaking of awesome movie soundtracks, I'm planning on Putting some exclusive stuff from movies I've worked on on there soon, so uh, some cool music stuff getting added there.
1: And is Jason H on there? The song you wrote for for me, Dave, in the style of Axel F.
2: Absolutely, it is on there as a free download for anyone who subscribes.
0: And uh, of course, the picture of Dave in his karate outfit will be there (laughs) in his
1: gi. Definitely. Uh, (laughs) So, Jason, what do we have on our next episode? Hey, Josh. The Sundance Film Festival. Guess what year it started? I'm guessing it was 1984. You're right, Josh. So we have the first ever winner of the
0: Sundance Film Festival and it is called Old Enough. So tune in next time for Old Enough and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie
2: Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
0: An All Points West production produced by David Rosen
2: in Las Vegas.
3: Yeah, we're excited. Well, don't get too excited. Take it (laughs) easy. I've lowered my expectations already. (laughs) Okay, good.